listening to Hot Topic, Growing Connections in a Warming World, with Becky Benning-Griffin. Each episode, we interview someone who has an opinion about climate change, which is different to the common consensus, and use the insights we glean from the interview, along with our own research, to provide you with tips on how to have more productive conversations about climate change. Today, we are talking to Peter Ridd. Griffin will now tell you a bit about him. Peter Ridd is a physicist who was employed by James Cook University until 2018 when his contract was terminated for breaching the university's code of conduct. In 2016, Ridd was subjected to a censure due to his criticisms of scientists studying the Great Barrier Reef, which he expressed in an email sent to a News Corp Australia journalist. Ridd's primary concern was that the research these scientists were producing lacked proper quality assurance. In particular, he claimed that the Great Barrier Reef Marine Park Authority and the ARC Centre of Excellence for Coral Reef Studies, which is based at JCU, was knowingly using misleading historical pictures of the graded reef. In the following years, Ridd continued to raise his concerns through various media, including publishing a series of articles in the Marine Pollution Bulletin concerning the need for a formalised system of quality control for environmental policy science. Rudd has also been a repeat guest on several right-wing news outlets, including Sky News and 2GB. In interviews, Rudd has claimed that one of the main problems that concerns him is a loss of scientific objectivity due to emotional attachment. In August 2020, Rudd gave a speaking tour of regional Queensland, where he argued that pollution from farmland is not seriously damaging the reef. These lectures were hosted in part by the Australian Environment Foundation, a charity set up by the right-wing think tank the Institute of Public Affairs, which has strong ties to the agriculture and fossil fuels industries. The IPA has been an ongoing supporter of Ridd in his legal battle with the university concerning his termination, which most recently culminated in a high court hearing in June 2021. A verdict is yet to be reached. We will now be listening to parts of our interview with Peter Ridd, If you want to hear more about it, we will be providing the full interview on both our Spotify and YouTube channel. And now over to the interview. Basically, the gist that I'm getting from you, correct me if I'm wrong, is that you're like you're not at all denying like just like the fact that climate change and global warming and um, um, carbon dioxide increase is a result of human activities but like what you're kind of disputing is like that you're not disputing that at all you're just disputing that it actually is as bad as people say it is because yes there are well you're disputing partly how bad the future effects are based on models but you're also disputing it because um, you say that people don't acknowledge the, um, the benefits as much as they acknowledge the downsides yeah, yeah that, that's not far from it I mean I I don't think that the temperature rise is going to be dangerous, but I certainly think there is a temperature rise. I don't think that all the temperature rise we've seen over the last 150 years is due to carbon dioxide. I think some of it natural and some of it is due to, to literally the tampering of the, of the records. And I question why is all this, you know, why is there this narrative of complete disaster Um when actually it's not all disastrous at all. And I just feel like I'm being sold apart. You thought your research showed that the general consensus in the group think was like wrong. And then like, and then someone's been there like, and you knew that because like you were an expert in your field and you had spent many years there. And, but then like later on, you realize, hold on, like that's what made you become more of a climate spec skeptic in general was because 
you were like, although you weren't an expert in like the other fields of um, like in general climate change, a lot of fields, the you realize the same process was going on um, in the coral, like with the coral reefs as like in general. Is that correct? Yeah, yeah, that, that's pretty much it. I'd go a little bit further in the sense that because I'm a physicist and I've done a lot of modeling. So I did a lot of um, modeling of electromagnetic, you know, uh, we're mod modeling antennas to do um, uh, for geophysical mineral detection as my PhD. So I've done a lot of modeling and I'm into the, because of the field, I'm into meteorology and oceanography because that's what, you know, we do a whole lot of work on heat transfers in the ocean. And I took a great deal of time, um, probably about 10 years ago, to really go into the way that the models work. So I know how to model, right? I wasn't familiar with the details of the, um, the climate models, but I'm, I'm familiar with all the physics behind it, you know, the Navier-Stokes equations, the thermodynamics, the radiative transfer, to just look at whether the, the correct sensitivity analysis had been done on those. And I'm completely unconvinced. So I... I wasn't an expert on that. I still wouldn't regard myself an expert on it. However, at, say at my university, where there would probably be 100 people who would say that they were into climate change research, there were only two people in that university when I was fired who actually understood how the models work. So because that really is the nitty gritty. If those models are right, then we've got troubles. If they're wrong, we don't have a problem. Almost nobody has the physics mathematics and meteorological um, background to understand those models. There was another physicist who was there. He's since left as well. So most people are basing their views on climate change on faith in the scientific system. That's what you're doing because you don't understand it all. I don't understand it all. But if we have faith in the system, and maybe you do, um, then you've got to go along with it. Now, I've completely, completely lost faith in the scientific authorities how has your view like of um, like the reefs and i guess climate change in general has been like shaped by being a scientist and do you think your view would have been a lot differently if you hadn't gone follow the career of becoming a scientist oh if i hadn't been a scientist i wouldn't hold this view with the the detailed knowledge that that i've got now i've seen that i've seen peer review work i know I, I mean what amazed me was well why didn't i know you know 25 years ago that peer review is all this rubbish, right? I know how long I spend doing a peer review. I mean, I've done hundreds of peer reviews of other people's papers. How long do I spend? Well, what happens, right? You get an email, oh, could you do this peer review? And you say, oh, yeah, all right, okay. And you do it for free. Remember, it's done for free. Hmm. And then a month later, the editor says, you haven't done it yet. He says, oh, yeah, don't worry, I'll do it in a week. And he keeps on chasing you until eventually you do it. And everybody's like that, by the way. Well, not everybody, but most of us are like that. And so you think, geez, I really need to get onto it. And you you read this thing for a morning, you write a, a bit of a report and you do your best to find your mistakes. You don't do the experiments again. You don't do the statistical analyses again. To do that would take you months and months and months of work, right? So I knew that peer review was rubbish. And so it's only by having that inside knowledge. And also there are two groups of people who are more likely to be skeptics than any other groups. And they are the physicists and the geologists. The geologists, because they look at the changes in the climate and everything else over, you know, scales, and they see massive variations over any time scale. So they are naturally climate skeptics. They're naturally inclined to say climate is changing. So what? You know, of course it's changing. 
Um, it's not changing particularly fast compared with some of the historic changes in climate change, despite what the IPCC might say. And the other are the physicists, because they're the ones who've got the mathematical ability to really drill down into the processes that are affecting the climate change and the way that the models work. And it's notable, for example, that the Russian um, climate model warms much less than all the other models. And there are a bunch of physicists. They are not working in a system where obeying the climate um, doctrine probably matters to their um, their funding. So for some reason, their model, which is a perfectly fine model, warms at about half the rate of the, the, the warmest model. You're not worried that in a hundred years time or so, um, these weather events could be a lot worse, worse than they had been previously, or because, of, as you mentioned before, is it because of these models and because you don't have a faith in the system, then you're not worried about because you, you're not worried about it because you don't have faith in what they're saying? Look, I wouldn't say I'm not worried about it. I, mm. I, I worry about a lot of things, right? And, you know, you've got to worry about the climate doing something funny because it's such, it's such a cataclysmic thing if it goes too badly wrong. You've got to worry about the Great Barrier because it's so beautiful. When there's something that's really important, you're going to worry about it. You should. I mean, we my, I've just to become a grandfather, this little baby. Congratulations. <laughs> Thanks. But, but the funny thing is that it's been a wonderful baby. It hardly ever cries. It sleeps through the night. And I'm worried because maybe there's something wrong with this baby. <laughs> it's a bloody marvellous baby, but I'm still worried about it. So you should be. Um, worried about the reef. You, you can't not worry about the reef. You can't not worry about climate change. But I shouldn't be worrying about this baby. I should be worrying about all the other things that are happening in various people's lives close to me. I should be worried about a volcanic eruption because I know that that's, that's going to happen sooner or later. I know it's going to happen sooner or later. And, yes, I do worry a little bit, bit about climate change. And, um, and so what I want to do is see is a huge audit done on it, just to see what's left at the end of that. And now I will be in a, in a better position to work out whether, you know, I should worry more or worry less. Would you say that like, if there was a very well done audit and, like, and like, that you thought was very well done and there was like proper, it wasn't a part of the scientific community, it was done by something um, external and it was a proper well done audit of like the say if it was just like the coral reefs or the climate um, change, like science in general. Or the models, yeah. Or like all the models, and it was a proper well-done audit. And then, but then that audit did say then, like hypothetically, that, okay, yes, like some things are wrong, but in general, climate change is a big worry. If there was that audit, then would you be happy then like to say, yeah, okay, like we do need more worried about it? So like what you're like, is, am I Yes, yeah, I, I would. And hmm. be beforehand, you'd have to pin me down and say, all right, well, I don't want you wiggling out at the end of it and saying, oh, well, you didn't do the audit properly, so I'm still not going to accept you. You can't have that, right? Mm. So it's a bit like pre-registration of hypotheses, which is not done enough, and this is the thing that's coming through in the biomedical area, that you've got to pin me down and say, well, we're going to do all these things, right? And these are the quality assurance sort of checklists which we're going to do, and if we can tick all these boxes... And say we get a whole bunch of Russian physicists who've had nothing to do with climate modelling, and we're going to train them up and we're going to get them to do sensitivity analysis on, on models, right? So they're independent. And we're going to go through and we're going to do all these tests. If at the end of it, it shows, well, you know, it is five degrees. It's not, it's not just one degree. 
then I'm going to have to accept that. In the same way as this coral growth rate statistic where I'm saying, look, you guys haven't done this for 15 years. You've claimed a 1% a year reduction in coral uh, growth rate. We can do this very simple experiment. We just go out there again. We drill the holes in the coral. We do, we do it in a way that, that determines whether or not this error, which I think they've made, which is just simply just make sure you, you keep on using big corals. Don't use little corals, which is what they ended up doing between 1990 and 2005, which is just changing methodology. It's obviously bad science, but anyway, they claim not. But we can organise an experiment where we can both agree beforehand, if we do this and we get this result, I then have to, I have to, you know, suck it up. I got it wrong. And they need to do the same. So, yes, we can do that. And we would have to accept it. Do you think Australia is doing enough in terms of trying to mitigate um, future effects of climate change, like those effects that there are? Or do you think what we're doing currently is fine? Well, I don't think it actually matters what we do. I think it, it doesn't matter what we do for, for two reasons. Firstly, because I'm not worried by the increase in carbon dioxide. So even if the world burns coal, then we do double the carbon dioxide. I'm, I, I don't think I'm worried about that, certainly not relative to other things which really scare the living daylights out of me. I mean, I'm scared the living daylights out of a major volcanic eruption, which you just imagine what would happen. If you had a volcanic eruption that blanks out the sky over the whole of Europe or the whole of the United States, and suddenly you have a major part of your food infrastructure has been wiped out, right? Countries don't just sit there and starve, especially nowadays, right? They will end up, they will take the food that they want and it will be an utter disaster. And we can mitigate that very simply by simply storing, you know, far more food than we do at the moment. At the moment, we store only a few percent of the total annual consumption, right? We should be storing 34 to 40% of our annual food consumption so that when that happens, and it will happen in the next 100 or 200 years, all right, it's a long time, but then so is the problem from climate change. Um, those are the sorts of things we could do, be doing. The second thing is that it doesn't matter what we do because the, the Chinese and the Indians are going to burn coal, all right, because coal is the cheapest source. And we're only a small amount, so it actually doesn't matter what we do. But I would say that we can do more in, in, in the sense of setting an example. Using our insights from this interview, along with our own research, we will be having a discussion about how you can more effectively speak to people who have different opinions to you about climate change. I think the um, interview like went really well, and like because it just like showed that. Although, like, you've, um, like, seen this person on, like, um, different news sites and that kind of thing is talking about, like, climate change isn't a big as worry as you, um, as we all think. Although, like, a lot of immediate thoughts maybe are, like, why, why is that person saying those views? I think the interview was, like, really valuable because it showed that, like, um, Peter Reid wasn't, like, like, a bad person. Everybody's, like, views weren't just, like, like evil. It's just, like, that he was um, worried Um just like I guess the question of like whether he's worried about like um the and like his lack of faith in like the science um systems was um true and so like if we are we able to find where like where his like climate skeptic view actually like came from. Yeah, definitely. I think the discussion really humanized him because it just really showed how his opinion evolved. He definitely didn't set out to have these opinions and it just showed how his own experiences were so influential. And it really surprised me. I didn't expect um, 
for it to be such like a journey like that. I think it was really interesting because it showed that we can all go on that journey almost like because I would always have thought maybe I would enter science and my opinion about climate change wouldn't change. It would just be validified by my experiences. He did like think that the um, Earth was warming, but then he had some doubts about that as well. The like it, it wasn't as big as a worry as like people thought it was because like it one like um, the effects are the negative effects are over exaggerated, and also too because the um, positive benefits also supposed the positive benefits are under exaggerated. And I guess the reason why he had those views was because he had his expertise in like coral um, reefs and that kind of stuff. And like, and he had, he said he mentioned that he had done a lot of um, research into modeling that kind of stuff. He had area of expertise in that. And then so when he said that he had found um, wrong things um, in the coral reefs and that kind of stuff, and what the, his research, then he had extrapolated that to the wider area of climate change. Yeah, and I think like one of the things that um I thought was interesting that he mentioned around that was that he said you know, there was maybe only one or two academics at JCU who actually understood the models. Like, if he's saying that, like, there's only one or two people that actually understand the models, um, then, like, there's actually, like, lies an issue, like, how how do you disprove what he's saying or how do you prove what someone um, is saying? Like, I know, like, um, like, in the philosophy course that I'm doing, like, right now, like, there's been a lot of it. It's just, like, um, can you know something if um, like it's like yes, someone who has an expertise in the area knows something, does actually count as truly knowing something. And it's just like how do we rely on them and like trust in that if we can't can't be one hundred percent sure. Like, how do we, as as university students, fact check these things that supposedly only very few professionals actually truly understand? You know, very few academics actually have an in depth understanding of it. So, how can we as you know, undergraduate university students go and, and, you know, listen to the stuff that Peter Ridge said about, about the science and then go and, and fact check the things that he said. Um, cause that's one of the things that we're trying to, that we want to talk about in this discussion is, you know, he made all of these points about climate science and we, we want to provide sort of a balanced view on that. But for a lot of them, we found it's actually, you know, near impossible for us to, to go and actually look at the, the real science of it. Um, so I think, you know, a large part of this discussion is more going to be focused on, um, some of the more, the more abstract ideas that he mentioned about, for instance, um, objectivity in science. And, you know, one of his, his big points is that he thinks, um, climate science should be more objective and that there should be, you know, a, a body, um, that that checks um, climate science and that there needs to be more sort of reproduction of these, these results, talking about like the, the reproducibility crisis. Actually, Griffin, this segues really well, I think, into the articles you looked at. Which is called Rejecting the Ideal of Value-Free Science, uh, which is by Heather Douglas. Um, and one of the, the big ideas there is, you know, what is value-free science? Well, since the birth of modern science, really, there has been this push to differentiate the subjective from the objective information a scientist receives and analyzes. Um, and so Heather argues that science has never been value-free, 
um, and it is in fact impossible to make it so. So in her argument, she talks about two different kinds of value. Um, one is epistemic and then there's non-epistemic. So epistemic values are things that scientists actively encourage in their work, such as reproducibility, and non-epistemic values are typically considered outside the core of science, you know, such as social or religious values um, that actually determine what research gets done in the first place. Um, so Douglas argues that it is impossible to achieve value-free science and it's impossible to have science um, without the non-epistemic values um, and in attempting to do so, attempting to remove those sort of emotional and social and religious values from science, um, particularly when it's related to public policy, actually can make for bad science. Um, it's really interesting because definitely like when you're growing up, you think science is objective, it must be right. But I think definitely at uni, we've all learned about how much our own biases, our own experiences just really influence our research. And that's exactly what you're saying, Griffin. Yeah, like science is is a process and it's a pro process conducted by human beings. Right. So it's going to be impossible to remove all of the biases, like, you know, particularly because Peter Reed is a physicist and in physics, that's probably one of the areas where it is the easiest to get rid of these biases. And it's the easiest to be very precise in your margins of error, in your methodology. And particularly like a physics experiment is probably one of the most reproducible experiments that you can do. Right. You know, physics doesn't change. It stays the same, you know, wherever you are. Right. But then you go into, to, for instance, the life sciences um, and it becomes a bit more muddy, like, you know, in, in like environmental science, you know, you want to go and reproduce a measurement. You want to go and take measurements again. But how do you know that the environment hasn't changed? Like you don't know. Um, and, you know, it's even worse when you're, you're anal doing like, you know, psychology and, and analyzing like actual people you've got like a double bias there you've got the bias of the scientists and you've got the bias of the people that you're trying to analyze so it's it's a lot more complicated than the story that we grew up with that science is just this objective thing and that it's just you know it's 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 truth because it's not true science is a process to try and find a fact try to find facts and truth but science itself isn't isn't facts at all it's not factual you know there's the like there's the idea of like the scientific fact right you know i think that 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 doesn't actually exist i don't think there's actually such thing as a scientific fact because you never prove anything in science you know it's not like mathematics it's not like you can say well we have categorically proven that this is the case you know you can get very close to that with physics but with you know biology biological concepts it's constantly overturned you know, what are the causes of these things? Um, well, with the IPCC reports, they often say, like, this is what we predict or this is what mm. could happen and this is our degree of certainty and it's never 100% certain. And it just makes it really hard for us because we're wanting to look at climate science. We're putting so much trust in these institutions to tell us the correct things. So when someone like Peter Ridge says, well, maybe these institutions aren't right, it's really confronting because... And like you know, who can we trust? So yeah, and, yeah. and like I think like, yeah, I feel like there's a like, both very good points there, and because like the whole point of like what we're doing is just for university students and for our peers who are worried about 
climate change in the future, I get like what perspective to have, what to do about it, what to do with this worry. And I, I guess like from like the interview, like we, I was seeing how like there, like we got a glimpse of, I guess, how sometimes there isn't faith in the um, scientific system. And I think it is definitely true that you shouldn't have complete 100% faith, right? You shouldn't think every single paper that you see, every single word that comes out is completely true and unbiased because that's just false. But at the same time, we just have to do like the best with like the world that we're in. And it's like, so yes, like believe, like in the science, like with the science system, the science system isn't perfect, but it's also the question of, is there anything better? Is there anything currently better that we've got? And yes, like there might be some things that like, um, like there, there would be some science and like some modern science on climate change and like specific things that aren't done like correctly and things that aren't um, like are actually be able to reproduce. But then you just have to work with, okay, yes, there are some problems with it, like the scientific system and the fact that like you've got thousands of different scientists like peer reviewing, like a process that like yeah, maybe it isn't perfect in itself, but still like a, um, like a checking process ensuring that like that the system is as, as good as it can be yeah this ties in um really well to the paper i looked at actually so it basically sort of had the same ideas that peter had and that a lot of people that question climate change are questioning it because they don't really trust you know the structures of science and they don't trust the institutions or the data or the models which is something um peter definitely said but then I, I was looking at this research, so it's called Trust Slash Distrust Judgments and Perceptions of Climate Science, a research note on skeptics' rationalisation. And they said basically the way for institutions to improve this trust is by really explaining how they do their research and all the process they involve, because that like really improves trust. And I just think a really, you know, a good tip we can all use when we're talking to people with different opinions to us about climate change it's really explain the research behind our findings. So it's really easy to walk up to someone and say, here's a fact about climate change. And they'll be like, well, what does this mean? And if you explain how the researchers came to that point, that's definitely a really good way that, you know, we can um, make them have more trust in institutions and in scientific knowledge. Yeah, and I think the emotional um, factor is also very important. You know, people, people have very strong feelings about these things. Um, and, you know, as we saw in the RID interview, Ridd, Peter Ridd has very, very strong feelings about how you shouldn't have very strong feelings if you're doing science. Um, and so, like, I, I found a paper that um, is called The Lure of Rationality, um, and why does the model why does the deficit model persist in science communications? So that's referring to the knowledge deficit model, which um, is counter to the point that, to the, the research that you, you just mentioned, Becky. Um, knowledge deficit model says that the reason the people don't, you know, care, don't believe in science, the reason that people don't, you know, believe in climate change is because they don't have the facts. Um, yeah. and that has been shown, that has been shown to be false. It's, it's not because they don't have the facts, it's because they don't believe where the facts came from, which is exactly what you said. Um, and this paper su suggests that one of the um, best ways to get people to believe in the science more um is to bring in the emotional um factors more so like to, to to make it more about 
um, community um, and, and, and sort of a, a, a spiritual um, connection with, with, with the environment and that sort of thing. What that does is it breaks down these barriers that people see between them and the scientists. They say, oh, you know, I'm, I'm feeling all these emotions and the scientists, these, you know, you know, cold, stone-hearted people, um, you know, completely emotionless. But if you, if you break down those barriers, then it allows you to connect um, with, with these people a lot better. Because we want science to be objective in a way, but we also want our scientists to show emotion. So yeah. it's quite interesting. I think that all comes down to is that we know science can't be objective. So we really want to understand the emotions of the scientists, the processes. It's all about getting under that layer. You just listened to our first episode of Hot Topic, Growing Connections in a Warming World. Make sure you stay tuned for our next episode and try to apply the tips we talked about in your next conversations about climate change.